Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to an emergency episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewire.news podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that is holding everyone in the LGBTQ community in our hearts. I'm Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo. Rewire.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web. And the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So a big thank you to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. So this morning, our intrepid court whisperer, that's you, Jess, attended oral (laughs) arguments regarding the three Title VII cases, Altitude Express versus Zarda, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, and Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC. In these trio of cases, the court will decide whether or not the prohibition on discrimination because of sex in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act actually includes discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. Now, we've talked about these cases quite a bit, and for a more in-depth discussion of the facts of these cases, please check out our October 3rd episode where we go into it in great length. But I want to just jump right into what the scene at the Supreme Court was like today, Jess. Can you describe what it was like? Were there a lot of protesters? Were there a lot of counter protesters? What was the police presence like? Just, you know, give us some give us some background here. Sure. What was the what, what was it like in the soup? Um, I will say that when I got there this morning, um, I got there early. They wanted press to be in by around 845 or so. And I was outside of the court well before that. Uh, the scene was more subdued originally than I thought. There were definitely protesters. The counter protesters had not shown up yet. Um, but shortly after I was there, Capitol Police cleared everybody out because of a suspicious package. So that really sort of dampered the vibe and the sort of, you know, sometimes when there are these big protests that it's not quite a party vibe, but it's definitely sort of festival and carnival like um, when the right. cops are telling you, you got to move because we've got a suspicious package that kind of rains on that parade a little bit. So initially it was way more subdued than I thought at the end of the arguments, though, when we got out of the court, it was clear that once they Capitol Police had figured out whatever the hell was going on, folks had reconvened. And then there were protesters everywhere and counter protesters. So hundreds Hundreds of people. Capitol Police seemed to be doing a good job managing the crowd. Um, nothing had gotten really out of hand yet. But then I peeled out to come talk to you. <laughs> As well, you should have, because I'm very <laughs> important. <laughs> so can you give us an overview of what the arguments were like? What were the main arguments that were being made? Sure. So what's really interesting about the way the court handled the cases is that it took the two sexual orientation cases together and heard them first in a combined argument. And then the transgender rights case was supposed to come second. But the justices really were interested in mushing all of these ideas and cases together. And so they were going back and and forth between them, even though, as we've talked about on this podcast before, they're different issues. Sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination are themselves different issues. But the court, the justices were really sort of wrestling with all of them together. Uh, The main argument made by the plaintiffs in the sexual orientation case is that a plain reading of the Title VII statute encompasses sexual orientation discrimination. In other words, you can't have discrimination 
because of sex and not have sexual orientation discrimination, right? The two are dependent on one another. Now, Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General for the Trump administration and the attorneys defending the employers here said that's not the case, that what, what plaintiffs are asking for is a very big, expansive reading of the statute, one that would effectively rewrite that definition and would lead to dogs and cats marrying and all sorts of social chaos. That was effectively their argument. Um, Justice Stevens called that the parade of horribles and they and referenced that several times. So those are the two main nuggets. There were parts of the argument that then got into the details of how you do a Title VII statutory analysis, right? Do you have a bona fide occupational qualification to have a sex-specific policy, for example? So there's really weedy stuff that I think folks who have been following these cases likely would get lost in. But the, the one thing that I would say that was on everybody's mind was really what does the statute say in terms of what constitutes sex discrimination? I guess one of one of the things that I, I know that we were concerned about when we did our uh, preview of these cases on October 3rd is how the court was going to be sensitive towards uh, oh, yeah. Miss Stevens preferred pronouns, you know. So, mm -hmm. for example, there was this really horrible brief that was written. And I believe I mentioned this earlier on the other episode where they basically said that, you know, judges are not required to be tolerant of a person's preferred pronouns. And so I'm, I was concerned that there would be some sort of just really sort of transphobic, ignorant, mm -hmm. um, misgendering of Amy Stevens and just sort of fuckery really is just the word that I can Completely. think of. So, you know, was was there fuckery afoot this um, when it came to misgendering and her pronouns? There wasn't. You know, one of the things that surprised me the most, there were plenty of cringeworthy moments in the arguments. But one of the things that surprised me the most, frankly, was that the conservatives were all very well behaved. Um, and that includes folks like Justice Sam Alito, who you would expect to be, at least I would expect to be one of the sort of, you know, he sneers a lot and he's just kind of mean. So you yeah. would expect some some pushback there. But I think uh, the attorneys from Alliance Defending Freedom and Noel Francisco really read the room that that was not going to fly. Um, yeah. In fact, it was almost awkward to the extent that some of the conservative justices tried to trip over themselves to show that they weren't actually like holding very terrible opinions about these things. Um, you know, now that said, uh, you know, one of the things that I was looking for in addition to, you know, would they uh, misgender Amy Stevens? Thankfully, nobody did. But what kind of language were we going to hear from the justices? We only got a couple transgendered instead of instead of transgender people, right? Yeah. So there was a reference to the transgendered and the gays at one point. Um, you know, so there were some things like that that shows, I think, the justices' um, age and experience when it comes to issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. They're, they were wrestling with it. It was awkward, but nobody was an asshole, thankfully. Well, yeah. I take that back. The attorney representing uh, the funeral homes was not great at all. He was somebody who, like, out of the gate said, if plaintiffs get their way, then this is going to force employers to treat men like women. And, yeah. like, that is a very clear statement of values right there, right? Um, right? But in terms of the actual, like, upfront bigotry, 
Didn't see a lot of that. Um, now, uh, you know, Chase Strangio from the ACLU was at counsel's table. And I wonder to the extent that having to face several transgender people in the galley and at uh, the table made a difference. Um, right. I think it does. Well, that, I mean, that's good to hear. But, you know, ultimately, even if they were, you know, relatively well behaved when it came to uh, her preferred pronouns and misgendering, like what ultimately is going to happen? I mean, yeah. I don't think it's from my perspective, I obviously wasn't there, but just from sort of reading the room and reading the briefs, it seems to me that the court is not going to rule in favor of, of Stevens or Bostock or Zarda. Yeah, I mean, you make an excellent point, which is, you know, it doesn't matter if everybody was polite if they mm -hmm. still rule against these plaintiffs. And I think that that's probably what we're going to see. Uh, you know, one of the justices that really stood out the most uh, today in that matter was uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Now, I mean, remember when we used to talk about him all the time? <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> he was really these were his arguments. Every everybody seemed particularly on the conservative side, seemed to be talking to him. If conservatives feel like there is a weak link in the chain, they feel that it is with Justice Gorsuch. And that was really interesting to me. So do you think there's a chance that Gorsuch is going to side with the liberals or or is he just going to hem and haw and talk about oh how tragic it is, but then still you know, rule like an asshole. Yeah, I think survey says option B in yeah. here. So what he did was, you know, he, um, there is a big fight about the text of the statute. These questions ultimately are asking the court to essentially define again what because of sex means. And so there was a lot of hand wringing from Justice Gorsuch about, you know, how it seems like this is a close case textually, but what happens, how much social upheaval will there be if we legislate from the bench? And so, and, you know, those are very specific callbacks, too, to uh, Justice Roberts' opinion in the marriage equality decision where he said, look, nobody hates gay people. We just think that we're, you know, making the law up as we go along. And so I would anticipate that despite all of Gorsuch's protestations that this is a close case, we'll see him side with the conservatives and he's just going to feel real sad about it. <laughs> well, that's comforting. Thoughts and prayers, right? <laughs> a lot of thoughts and prayers. But, you know, he's on this whole civility shtick, right? Like, everybody should be speaking nice to each other. Politics has gotten too polarizing. He's got a book out on that right now. And yeah. so, like, he brought that kind of everyman vibe that he's working real hard. He brought that to the arguments today. Yeah. Yeah. So, so ultimately, what, what do you think is going to happen here? What is your prediction? You know, I think attorneys for the plaintiffs, both uh, uh, Pam Carlin and David Cole, did an excellent job making a very clear and cogent case um, for why gender identity discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination should be covered by Title VII. I think Gorsuch is going to be the deciding factor here. Um, and like I said, I think he's going to go with conservatives. Yeah. If I'm wrong on that. I would love to be wrong on that. I think there's also the possibility that the court could split the difference. And they seemed much more inclined to see a line from Price Waterhouse and gender stereotyping in the case of transgender rights than in the case of sexual orientation discrimination. And, um, you know, that so there are a couple different ways that the court could go. Um, I'd also just say that Justice Elena Kagan did an excellent job trying to thread Gorsuch along to get her to 
to get him to uh, join the liberals in an ultimate decision. And yeah. I think that speaks to a lot of her role as a former solicitor general. Right. She sort of knows how to count the votes. She could see what Noel Francisco was doing in his arguments and really did a good job of getting Gorsuch when Francisco would make a point to say, well, actually, no, reel him back into the text. And so those dynamics, I think, are going to really play out. Brett Kavanaugh asked exactly one question and, <laughs> and was so silent beyond that. And like, I, it was almost a surprise. Like, I hadn't heard his voice really since those awful hearings. And then we yeah. piped up about, yeah. you know, aren't you really just getting to the original intent of the statute? And then was silent for the rest of it. So, I mean, maybe talking about harassment in the workplace made him uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. I don't feel good about this. But what, what, what do you think can be done in the event that, you know, we get a bad ruling? So a couple of the points that the conservatives were really drawing on that um, are flags for me in terms of how a decision could go. They mentioned the fact that Congress has had the opportunity to bring in sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination into both Title VII and other types of statutory protections several times and have failed. They mentioned Edna, for example. They also mentioned the states that have affirmatively protected these points. Um, and so that gives them a fallback to say that, you know, this isn't our job, it's Congress's job, and we can look to the states because they've already done that. Noel Francisco really drilled home the idea that a ruling on behalf of the plaintiffs without some kind of recognition of what he called the religious liberty interests at stake would be a massive piece of judicial activism. And so conservatives are going to be very concerned about that impact on what they see as, you know, the evangelical culture. I ultimately expect this case, this will probably go five to four with the conservatives winning, which is not great news. However, however, this is a statutory case. It's not a constitutional law claim. So a bad decision here can, in theory, be undone by Congress. And that is something that I think is important. I know that that is a reach and we have a lot of work to do to get there. But this is not a constitutional question. And that is something that I think is important. And even if we get a bad decision, we can move forward and mobilize around. Well, I think this is, you know, clearly one of the big reasons that there were so many protesters out at the court today, right? I mean, it's just a matter of whether or not we are going to allow LGBTQ people to be discriminated against in um, employment. Are we going to let employers fire people because just because they are gay? And so I think that, or trans. And so I think that having this many protesters outside of the court sort of makes it clear that this is not acceptable, at least to a large majority of the population, right, Jess? Oh, absolutely. And the protesters were very clear about the need for additional action, no matter what the court does. Even a good ruling, for example, would not um, eliminate the need for further advocacy on that. And there were a bunch of protesters out today. One of them was Claudia Trevor Wright. She's a health educator and attorney out of Massachusetts. And she was outside of the court today, fully expecting to get arrested on these issues. And I thought folks would love to hear from someone on the front lines about why they get out there and what happens after they get arrested. So I had the chance to talk to her. Claudia, let's talk about this. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. So you got involved with some activism work around the Kavanaugh nomination, right? Indeed. Although it was not my first rodeo, it was certainly the most impactful. So talk about that. How does that happen? How does a health educator and attorney out of Massachusetts decide, you know what, I think I want to get arrested in front of Susan Collins' office? 
I, like everybody else, was watching what was happening in real time. And I have uh, a really clear memory of sitting in my office or being at home with my my young kids and reading the um, the allegations against now Justice Kavanaugh and just thinking, this is so wrong. This is so incredibly wrong. This can't happen. I can't abide. And just feeling like I couldn't sit in my own skin here in Massachusetts. I had to go. That's the only way I could describe it was just an absolute compulsion. And I was very lucky at the time to have the you know, support of my family to go down three times mm-hmm. during the course of that entire sham process uh, by myself uh, twice and with friends here the third time uh, to bear witness, to express the rage and the fear and um, just the the absolute disgust I felt with not only uh, the way that the process was done, but with the harm that this particular person would do to the court, uh, to the integrity of the court. That, I think, was one of the most compelling reasons for me is just feeling as if this person was so clearly unfit mm-hmm. for this Um it was just it's it to me it feels like a tremendous insult and knowing that we'd be here exactly where we are a year later mm-hmm. looking at cases coming before the court that are going to deeply impact people i love people i care about people i don't know um, mm-hmm. and, and deeply care about and um and that's why i went down so what do you hope to achieve um before the court uh this time Obviously, it's complicated and different for each of us, mm-hmm. but I think that it's incredibly important for all people to stand up against oppression. I don't identify as transgender. I don't identify as queer. It doesn't matter. I need to go be an ally when I see my my people being hurt, um, when, their de- when their humanity is up for debate, and I have the tremendous privilege of being able to do so. And so I feel obligated to do that. I think it's important to bring attention to it. So not everybody in my social circle is as attuned to this as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but they became very attuned to it when I was posting my arrest. Talk about that a little bit. What is it like to get arrested in, in a protest situation like this? And then sort of what happens afterwards? I don't know. Um, having only done that once of the of the three times I was down there, I was only arrested once. Um, I will say it had felt like something I knew it was something that I had wanted to do for a very long time. There were complicated reasons why I didn't. Um, but last year felt like all the stars had aligned and I was ready to do this. I don't think I expected it to be as um, physically and emotionally draining as it was. Mm -hmm. But I think part of that is because I don't think any of us knew what the entire process of the Kavanaugh hearings was going to do to each and every one of us. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I've heard from since then who talk about feeling just absolutely ill for months afterwards. Um, Lots of the folks who I became friends with, who I still hold close, who I met through that process, just described, you know, this tremendous weight on us for for months afterwards. But in the moment, I was much more emotional than I thought I would be. 
I felt the weight of every person's story that I carried with me. And I knew it wouldn't be enough to change the course of what was happening, but it didn't matter to me. I had to go do it anyway. That said, I think so emotionally, I think it was very draining, but I think in terms of the actual experience, some of us, you know, make jokes. It is the most privileged way to get arrested ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, and in fact, my arresting officer was lovely. Um, she was delightful. She was very polite, um, very respectful of my body. And how many people don't have that experience, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? Why did I have that experience? It's not something that's lost on me. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I literally was home to tuck my kids into bed that night. Amazing. In Boston. Um, it's really organized and it's very supportive. So that's, you know, it it minimizes the risk of harm to people who are doing it. But again, it's a privilege to be able to do that going into it, knowing that I'm able to minimize my risk of harm and that I'm already at a minimized risk of harm given who I am, um, which is wrong. But because of that, I feel that obligation to do it. So we have basically a sustained uh, protest narrative that starts with the Kavanaugh nomination and is now continuing on through his tenure at the court. We see this with the protests uh, for the Title VII cases. And now that we have news that the court is going to hear its first substantive abortion rights case since Kavanaugh was on the bench, I anticipate that there will be more. What are your thoughts before I let you go in terms of sustaining that kind of opposition? What does that mean for us as people and as a movement? Just what do you think about that? We're going to this man has a lifetime appointment. The court is going to be taking these monster cases that affect so many of our rights. How can we do this? I guess we maybe don't have a choice, huh? It's it's an excellent question, and I'll tell you why. Um, when I started to make plans to go down, I reached out to lots of my friends who had been with me through the Kavanaugh experience, um, and some of them can't go to the Capitol anymore because they've been um, issued stay-away orders because they've been arrested so many times. Mm-hmm. So it the reason I'm appreciative of that question is it can't just be the same cast of characters going down there and putting their body on the line. Uh-huh. Once you do it enough times... Um, they get your number and you can't go back. Um, and aside from the fact that it's an unfair burden to place on on people, that we all have a stake in this and we all have to, you know, kick in. Um, literally, the people who have been there, many of them can't return. Mm-hmm. So, wow, yeah, it's and I don't know how long these stayaways will continue. Um, but again, it's important that people recognize that. This is not the only form of activism. And I, again, I recognize, you know, not everyone is privileged enough to be able to risk putting their bodies on the line for arrest, um, that cost can be an issue, that work, you know, family. There's so many reasons why many people find this to be a barrier. But if you don't, mm-hmm. come. Come and do it. Um, it is the most meaningful activism I've ever done in my entire life. It changed me profoundly. Um, and I know it changed the people around me too. And, um, and, and we need to be there. We need to show up. Claudia, thank you so much for your time talking to me today about this and your activism and for letting our listeners know that people are there and are not going away. I appreciate your activism and your time so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jess. Take care. (laughs) 
just as a reminder, this is our episode for for this week, even though it's an emergency episode, but we will be back on schedule next week. If you would like to talk to us about any of this stuff, if you have any burning questions about Title Seven, you can find me on Twitter at Angry Black Lady. You can talk to Hegemami, who was actually at the Supreme Court today, at Hegemami, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. And you can follow at Rewire underscore news, just because you goddamn well should. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you can also join our Facebook group if you have questions. We are there. We're happy to answer any of your questions. And aside from that, we're just going to see you on what, Jess? See you on the tubes, folks. See you on the tubes, folks. Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Jessica Mason Piclo and Imani Gandhi. This episode was produced by Mark Folletti, who is also our executive producer. And the Rewire.News editor-in-chief is Jody Jacobson. 